Amen. Now hear the word of God from John chapter 18. I'll be reading the first 11 verses. These are the words of God. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke, of those whom you gave me I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this word, for this gospel of our beloved brother, John, who walked with Jesus in those years of ministry, who heard him pray and preach, watched him heal the sick and raise the dead, and witnessed his arrest and crucifixion. Let us, by your Holy Spirit, come to see all John witnessed and faithfully follow our Lord with him. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. 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 Please be seated. <clears throat> like the rest of John's gospel, John's account of the rest and crucifixion of Jesus agrees in the main points with the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are very, very similar with one another, with one another about the rest and crucifixion. But John, again brings forth different and stirring details the others do not have. He makes a point of, of bringing forth um, seemingly insignificant issues, which really, if, if you think about them and we study them in light of all John has been teaching us through this gospel, have a lot to teach us. John's signs, you remember, he has seven signs that he chose, seven particular signs of, that Jesus had done, he reveals through his, gospels in the, in, his gospel in the first 11 chapters, and they were chosen specifically, he said, that the reader might believe, that the reader might believe, that's John 20, particularly he wrote, so that the reader would believe that Jesus was the Christ, that he was the Messiah, the promised anointed one who would come and deliver his people, who would come and establish his kingdom, who would come and forgive their sins, and that he was the Son of God, that he was both man and God. Over and over we have seen how Jesus was never waylaid by evil, by evil men, but that he was always acting in obedience to his Father, and this comes out again in this passage as well. Jesus said time and again, I am only doing the works that my Father has given me to do. I'm only speaking the words my Father has said to give, uh, give to me. We've seen time and again where they've sought to arrest him, they've sought to grab him, and he slips out of their sight, slips out of their midst. As John writes now, he emphasizes many details that reveal Jesus as the new Adam, the new head of the human race, the perfect son of God, and the one foretold throughout the Old Testament. We will see this as we go through this chat, these next couple of chapters. So why don't you turn your attention to the text and look at a few things that, that might not, you might not notice right at first, especially if you're not comparing with the other Gospels. 
Jesus write, or John writes in, in chapter 18, verse 1, he says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the book, brook Kidron, and there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. entered. There are two things in that verse that are interesting. First of all, he mentions here, and the other, uh, the other gospel writers do not, that he went over the book, brook Kidron. And then secondly, he, he does not mention that this is the Garden of Gethsemane. It is, that's where it is, but he just says that there, he went over the brook to a garden. The brook Kidron is first mentioned when King David crossed over it weeping while fleeing Jerusalem and the rebellion of his son. That's in uh, 2 Samuel 15, 23. Absalom has come and is raised in insurrection. David has to flee, and as he flees, he weeps, it says, as he crosses over the brook Kidron. Now a faithful son of David, another son of David, crosses over the brook Kidron as Jerusalem celebrates with the Passover lamb while scheming to kill the Lamb of God. In, in fact, uh, on this day of preparation, in these couple of days of preparation, with 100,000 or more visitors that have come to celebrate the Passover and have to have their lamb slaughtered, they would have done so at the temple, and it would have run out of a viaduct that would have poured into the brook Kidron as it went out of the, uh, out of the city. So this brook had been filled in the last day with blood, the blood of Passover lambs, as Jesus crosses over. So, the brook Kidron is mentioned. Remember, this is the, um, this is the gospel that also begins, and twice is the declaration of, of behold, the, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And then this issue of the garden. John doesn't tell us, as I said, that the garden is the garden of Gethsemane. He simply records it as a garden. He wants to set up, and we'll see, he sets it up, we'll see garden over and over again the next few, uh, cha couple chapters. He sets garden up as a type in, instead. Jesus enters a garden to redeem his people from their sin and rebellion. That's what's going to happen. It was in a garden, remember, where the first man fell into sin. And the contra contrast is then striking. The Garden of Eden was the sanctuary where Adam would meet with God. After the fall, the tabernacle, there was no garden established again by God for his people, um, as the special sanctuary of meeting with him until the tabernacle is brought forth. And the tabernacle and then the temple also are created, and you read the descriptions of what is inside the temple and how it is decorated. It's a garden. It's a garden that has been created. It's a sanctuary, which was a garden. And so these, these, these were gardens where God would meet with his people again. There was a garden where Jesus was crucified, where he was buried. If you look at chapter 19, only John mentions this. John, John 19, 41, this is after Jesus has been crucified. It says, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So both the tomb and the place where Jesus is crucified, John wants you to know, was a garden. There was a garden. And it was in the garden also that Jesus would be mistaken for a gardener in chapter 20, verse 15. We'll get there later. The New Jerusalem, we are told also, is a garden city. The place where people meet with, their, with God. The New Jerusalem is a garden city, the perfect one. And it's a garden city. Listen to, um, we'll turn there if, you, if you'd like, very end of, easy to find, the very end of the Bible. Revelation 21, or 22 verses 1 through 3. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God 
and, and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him or worship him there. And so this new Jerusalem is this garden city where a pure river of life proceeds from the thrones, while trees grow on both sides, yielding magical fruit and leaves that heal the nations. This was, the gar- this was all in, um, garden talk that comes out over and over in the Gospels, this place where we dwell with God in, in, um, in, in a close and intimate relationship. So it goes on, it says in, in ch- verses 2 and 3, And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus, Jesus often met there with his disciples. Interestingly, so, so once in the garden, John omits the whole garden prayer, the, the prayer where Jesus prays and, and drops sweats of, of blood, cries out to God. Instead, he had focused on the high priestly prayer of chapter 17, and the sleepiness of Peter, James, and John are omitted as well. Instead, he notes that Judas, he focuses on Judas, and he notes that Judas would have known where Jesus would go that night, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. It seems that Jesus was planning, knowing that, that these things were about to happen, and so he goes, he takes his disciples to a place that he would regularly go, maybe at, maybe at different feast times, they would then go to the garden and pray. He knew that Judas would know where he would be. So Jesus wasn't hiding in the garden. Jesus was waiting in the garden. And Judas shows up. It tells us here that he received a detachment, a detachment of troops. The Greek word um, indicates a large contingent of Roman soldiers, maybe a tenth of a legion. A tenth of a legion would be five or six hundred people. And, and so not necessarily that would be that large, but uh, oftentimes in uh, art that's depicted of this arrest of Jesus, you have a handful of guards. But we, had, we have hundreds of, go- of Roman um, uh, soldiers with uh, the other, the other gospels tell us with swords and clubs, along with torches, um, that have come along, uh, come come with with Judas at Judas leading into the garden, and um, along with them are the temple officers of the chief priests. That would be the Sanhedrin, and then it also says and many Pharisees. Now you, you got to think about this for a minute. Um, the the, Sa- the Sadducees and the Pharisees they don't get along. Right? And the Romans and the Jews, the Jewish authorities, they don't get along. And yet here they all are gathered together, these co-belligerents at best, all with one common mutual hatred of and threat from Jesus. Jesus was threatening both the civil authority and the, the temple authority with, with the claims that he was making to be the Messiah and the Son of God. They gathered together. They gather together in order to collaborate, in order to bring this threat down. The chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command in the week leading up to Passover that anyone who knew where Jesus was not only should report it, they must report it. That's in chapter 11, verse 57. You know where Jesus is. You need to come and tell us. Part of the reason they would say this, they, they, they anticipated an uprising. And that's partially why you have this in the entire Roman um, cohort there to make sure that that doesn't happen. It doesn't happen in the middle of this feast with 
hundreds of thousands or hundreds of thousands, they would say, even, of visitors that have come into the city, um, you don't want to start a riot. You don't want a riot to get started. It seems that Judas and the Jewish authorities convinced the Romans that Jesus posed the threat to both the Jews and the Romans, and so they conspired together, fulfilling what we, what we sang earlier in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Messiah, saying, let us break their bonds in peace, in pieces and cast away their cords from us. We are not going to let him have his way. Which, of course, as it says in verse 3, um, or verse 4, I'm sorry, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, Jesus knew Psalm 2. He who sits in heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. So Jesus knew who he was and he knew what was going to take place. And he knew why Judas was able to gather together the Romans and the Jews together to come and see Jesus arrested. But they don't know who he is. They don't realize who they're dealing with. You probably noticed the kiss of Judas is not recorded by John. Instead, the confidence and power of Christ seems to be exalted and brought forward. So Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon them, instead of backing away, steps forward before this group, before these soldiers, steps forward and says to them, whom are you seeking? He knew all things that would come upon him. We know from the synoptics that he has finished this, his prayer, pleading if there's any other way that this cup should pass, he says. And then he would say, and yet not my will, but your will be done, Father. And he gets up. Not, you, you, you sometimes want to think that he gets up with a sense of defeat. But I think this passage shows us that he got up from that prayer, from that agonizing wrestling with God, with a great sense of confidence of what was before him. And maybe that's something just to learn in terms of how we should pray as well. In times of great struggles, um, great questions, great difficulties that we are having, that we also should get down and wrestle with God and not get up until we have the confidence, not just surrender, not just a sense of surrendering to God's will, but the confidence that God's will is to be done. The confidence that God's will is going to cause... Um, is, is going to cause God himself to laugh at his enemies, to laugh at the trials that are brought, brought before us as he instead brings all, all good and all glory to himself through them. That's what Jesus does. And so we see him here now standing and confidently stepping forward before the enemies. These enemies brought lanterns and torches to find those they expected would run and hide in the darkness of the garden and weapons expecting a fight. But Jesus went forward, stepping away from his disciples, and said to them, Whom are you seeking? And they answer, interestingly, Jesus of Nazareth. So Jesus steps forward into the lantern light. Whom are you seeking? They, say, they don't say you. <laughs> they say Jesus of Nazareth. That's because many of these Roman soldiers, probably many of the Sadducees and Pharisees that were there, had never seen Jesus before. Like, they, they just had heard about him. 
And, and they're coming, they're expecting the possibility of a riot, a possibility of some kind of revolutionary leader, and this man steps forward. Whom are you seeking? <laughs> uh, Jesus of Nazareth. Do you happen to know where he is? Jesus of Nazareth. And, and interestingly, they, they don't know what he looks like, but more importantly, they don't know who he is. They just think he's Jesus of Nazareth. They, they just think he's a, he's, a, he's a man who grew up out there in the outskirts of Galilee and has been causing trouble over and over again these last few years during different feasts and gatherings in Jerusalem. And now it, they're done with it. They're done with it and, and they don't want the threats. All they think that he is is some man with some crazy teaching and, and stories of, 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 of miracles that have taken place. Some of them have even seen some of the miracles. They don't understand what's going on, but he's just Jesus of Nazareth. And then John says, I want to tell you what happens when they ask that question. But before we look at the answer, remember what has gone on, what we've been told in the Gospel of John, and only in the Gospel of John, over and over and over. The Gospel of, jo the gospel of John is the Gospel of the I Am. In John, we read that Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And to the Jewish authorities who thought that they were something and that they could argue with Jesus of their own lineage, making themselves pure, saying to them that because Abraham was their father and you, bastard son, are nobody, Jesus said to them, before Abraham was, I am. And they knew exactly what he was saying because it was that moment they took up stones to cast at him. Well, in your Bible here, we continue to see that the answer to this question, Jesus said to them, I am he. If you have a New King James, many of the translations will do this. They'll, they will put the words that are in, um, that we add to make it grammatically fit English in italics. I am he is technically really not what Jesus said. He said, if he spoke in Greek, and I don't know that he did, but if he spoke in Greek, he said, ego eimi, I am. He said, I am. He said the same thing that he said when he spoke to them about, uh, uh, about being before Abraham, I am. He answers, I am. This is the name of God. This is the name of Jesus. We've been watching what happens with the power of the name of God. We've seen this in the, even the previous chapter. So, Jesus answers, I am. What are we to see in the response? Hundreds of men brought to their knees by the name of God. What are we to see? What are you to notice there? What are you to learn when you have all of the enemies of God all fall to their knee when the name of God is spoken by Jesus? I'm reminded of the story of Ahaziah, the king of Israel, who sent a captain with his 50 men up a hill to call upon Elijah to come down. It's in 2 Kings chapter 1. Ahaziah calls for, for Elijah to come because Elijah has sent a message saying, you're going to die, Ahaziah. King of Israel says, I want that man now. Bring him here. He sends a captain with 50, um, 50 men, 50 warriors, to, to go up the hill where Elijah the Tishbite is. And so, this captain of 50 with his 50 men went up, and there he was sitting on the top of a hill. And he spoke to him, man of God, the king has said, come down. 
So Elijah answered and said to the captain of 50, if I am a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And fire came down from heaven and consumed him and the 50 men. So Ahaziah sent another captain with another 50. Son of man, or man of God, thus, thus has the king said, come down quickly. And Elijah answers again, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. And again, Ahaziah sends a captain and 50. How would you like to have been that, that captain and the 50 heading up there now? The third captain of 50 went up and he came and he fell on his knees. He fell on his knees and pleaded before Elijah, man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. It wasn't until the third captain came. Jesus only does this once with the soldiers. I wonder if he had done it a second or a third time. But he says once and they fall to their knees. Jesus certainly made clear that his life would not, could not be forced from him, but that he had authority to lay it down himself, and he had authority to raise it back up. His authority over every breath he took was his and his alone. And here, in striking them down, but not striking them dead, as, as it had happened under Elijah, he also gave them a demonstrable call and opportunity to repent. There it was. Yes, your knees have gone down. Good. You're, you're, we're in a good place here now. Let's, let's continue with this, right? But they don't. Their hearts are hardened. Their hearts are hardened with Judas. However, with his authority demonstrated, he asks again, and this time in his reply, he says this as well. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am. Therefore, if you seek me, let these other go their way. That the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke, of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. And so Jesus commands them to let the disciples go, to which they comply. Jesus was already then standing in the gap for his disciples. He's already there protecting his sheep, leading, leading them with him in the way of the cross, standing on their behalf. Peter, as always it seems, always impulsive, steps forward to attack. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, his slave, and cut off his right ear. Peter, um, probably having watched this, this, this group of soldiers all drop to their knees, back up and drop down, fall down, thought, this is our moment. This is it. This is our moment takes out his sword. Oh, Peter. Probably seeking to sever his head, Peter misses and cuts off his ear. And John tells us that this is Malchus, the slave of the chief priests. The name Mal Malchus means destined to reign. And Luke tells us that Jesus reached out and healed his ear. Um, Scholars and, and commentators alike all say that the inclusion of his name suggests that Malchus was alive as John was writing this gospel later on and was known. This, this was Malchus. You know Malchus. This was known. He was known. He was known among those to whom John was writing. 
indicating that Jesus did more than simply heal his physical ear, but that he came to hear and understand the gospel. More importantly are Jesus' words to Peter, though. Jesus says to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Already he had rebuked Peter for thinking that he could stand in the way of Jesus' plans. This had already taken place. Jesus, uh, it's recorded in Matthew 16, uh, the reference is wrong, it's verse 21. Matthew, Matthew 16, where Jesus began to show his disciples that he was going to go to Jerusalem, that he was going to suffer, and that he was going to die. And Peter steps forward and says, um, this shall not happen to you. This is not going to happen, Lord. And Jesus turns to him and says, get behind me, Satan. You know the ways of man, not of God. Because the ways of God meant he was going to go to the cross. And so Jesus has already corrected Peter with regard to this, and now he had to do so again. But he does so saying something different. This time he says, shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? What is this cup? The cup which Jesus is referring to is the cup of God's judgment and wrath. It is well known throughout the scriptures of the cup of wrath, of cup of God's wrath upon his enemies. Israel had drunk from this cup, according to Isaiah, chapter 51, verse 17. And Jeremiah spoke of God's wrath in terms of this cup of judgment for all of his enemies, of all the nations. Listen to Jeremiah 25. For thus says the Lord God of Israel to me, take this wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. So the picture is this picture of a cup of wrath that is being forced upon those to drink. And it is the cup of God's wrath to go down deep into them. Jeremiah writes, and they will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. Jeremiah says, then I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations drink to whom the Lord had sent me. Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, its kings and its princes to make them a desolation, an astonishment, a hissing, and a curse as it is this day. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his servants, his princes, and all his people, all the mixed multitude, all the kings of the land of Uz, all the kings of the land of the Philistines. And then he goes on for several verses to name all kinds of nations and kings that you don't know. Because they're gone. They're gone. They thought they were something. It goes on, Jeremiah says, Therefore you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink, be drunk, and vomit. Fall and rise no more because of the sword which I will send among you. And it shall be that if they refuse to take the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, You shall certainly drink. God, in essence, says, don't think you can stop this cup of wrath being poured down your throat. That's the cup of God's wrath. That's, that's, what God, that's what God righteously and justly does to his enemies. The enemies of God will drink this cup down to the dregs. Psalm 75, 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. It is fully mixed, and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. And Jesus says, shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Jesus drank your cup. Jesus drank your cup. The cup of God's wrath was poured out. And Jesus drank it down all the way to the dregs. 
for you. God's wrath and, ju and judgment upon every evil, every sin, every wickedness is, is going to be full and complete in the final day of judgment. There will not be a sin that will be missed. And if he could count your iniquities, if you, we could count our iniquities, the, the number is, is beyond our ability to fathom how we rebel and how we as a people have rebelled against God. And the cup of wrath is righteous and just and holy and all the way down, all the way to the dregs. And Jesus is saying, I'm drinking it. I drank it for you, for my people. David fled across the Kidron to flee his accusers. Jesus crossed the Kidron to face his accusers. Adam was a gardener who did not protect his bride. Jesus is the better gardener who protected his disciples. Both were kings, and Jesus is the better husband king who laid down his life for his bride. Judas knew all these Old Testament stories, and Judas had spent years with Jesus. He had been with Jesus in the same garden enough times to know that's exactly where Jesus would be that night. This is what a calloused heart looks like. Jesus would even say to Judas to his face, that which you are about to do, do quickly. You know it's me, don't you, Jesus? And Judas goes, and even so, Judas goes and gathers the group, gets his 30 pieces of silver, and leads a charge to go arrest the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what a calloused heart looks like. That's what happens to hearts that God hardens. That's what, that's what happens if, if, if you don't recognize your hard heart, if you don't recognize and hear the words of, of God's judgment and cry out for mercy, God will harden your heart. And, and, and people turn and begin to be like Judas in countless ways, rebelling against God, rebelling against his law, rebelling against his ways, demanding of themselves to be their own judge. Their own, um, their own judge of their own life, their own judge of determining what is right and wrong. And God, in his justice, turns men and women over to that hardness. And so by the word of God, hard hearts can be hardened. If you sit here with a hard heart, unmoved by the name of Jesus, I pray God would not harden that, heart of you, that hard heart of yours. I pray instead you would hear these words. He drank my cup. I, I know it was in that cup. I know it was deserved in that cup. He drank my cup. Because at the name of Jesus, the great I am, every knee will bow. And they will because of the powerful name of Jesus. Every knee will bow. Because of the name of Jesus. In, in Philippians 2.10, you almost miss it. It's not just that everyone will bow the knee, but at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth. And they will because of the powerful name. Every knee bows at the name of Jesus because everyone is humbled before him in their sin. Do you hear that? Everyone bows the knee because everyone is humbled before him in their sin. Be humbled now. Be humbled now.
Do not be humbled at the last day. Be humbled now and deal with, deal with your sin by seeing the Lord Jesus take the cup of wrath for you. All are enemies of God. All are enemies of God. And so all are handed the cup of wrath. But hear the gospel. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But we didn't even hand him the cup of wrath. We didn't even turn to him and say, would you please take the cup of wrath? We didn't even want to do that. He took it. And what you're to hear in the gospel message is, is that it wasn't, it wasn't so much that you decided for Christ, but rather that Christ decided for you in that garden. That Christ decided after, after pouring out his prayers such that he sweat drops of blood, said, I'm going to take your cup. Father, you have a cup for them. I'm taking it. And he didn't ask you. He didn't ask you. If you hear the words of the gospel, what you come to realize is the reason you can hear the words of the gospel is because he took your cup and he drank the wrath of God all the way to the dregs, every bit of it. That's new. That's a new heart. Those are ears that have been opened. Those are hearts that have been new and soft. It is because he took your cup of wrath and he drank it and he drank it all the way down. That's what he did on the cross. And instead, he gives you a cup. This cup. He gives you a cup of blessing. You're told to drink. It is the cup of his blood, the forgiveness of your sins, and the reconciliation of your heavenly father. And it's here for you in the preaching of his gospel. Father, I pray that hard hearts would be softened and that the gospel of Jesus Christ would be heard and received. Today, do this, merciful Father. Encourage as well those who know you already that every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. May we walk by faith in that confidence and the strength of our Lord and Savior. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.